0: And it's worth recognizing, even as we get started, that the author and Abraham himself have an agenda. The agenda is to have a baby. And the tension of the story that we read tonight holds together collectively until the birth of that baby, and it's worth keeping that in mind. As you may remember, in the chapters past, God has promised Abraham extensive promises, A great nation, an inheritance in the land, blessings beyond belief. And that through him and his descendants, who would be numbered as many as the stars, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But of course, that blessing all hinges on a son. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 16. Now, at this point, we're more, more than a decade in. Uh, to Abraham receiving this promise and stepping out in the land. And so it's helpful to keep that timeline in mind. It was 10 years ago that God called Abraham and gave him these promises. So with that setting, look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. There's an implied parenthetical there, 10 years later, okay? It continues. She had a female Egyptian servant, whose name was Hagar... And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So what we see here is Sarai feeling the weight, knowing that she is most likely the issue in the fulfillment of God's promise. In fact, can you hear at least A little bit of frustration if not resentment in her words when she says since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children and that word in the Hebrew means prevent later when we get to Abimelech and he says I have prevented you from having a child it's the same word that's used what she does recognize here in positive is something we see reaffirmed over and over again that it's God who opens the wombs in Genesis so she's got this tension The tension is between the promise that God has given and her current circumstances, which are now relatively demonstrated. I'll remind you at this point, Sarai is already an old woman. By the time this promise is fulfilled, she'll she'll surpass the mark of menopause and the possibility of bearing children altogether, but she's already sneaking up against that boundary now. And so it's in that context that she's weighing the options and she turns to something that today sounds weird. But in that day was actually not that uncommon. We have many legal codes from about the time and about the area of Abraham that refer to similar practices. What you have to remember is in the day and age of the Bible, barrenness was a serious problem. And this was true of the the entire ancient world, uh, you know, just looking back in Genesis, did you notice that the genealogies mark three dates in every man's life? The day he's born, the day he has his first son, and the day he dies. Okay? So the heir apparent being born was a momentous occasion in the life of the man because all of humanity, it seems, in the ancient world had this future orientation. We talk about what will be left for our children. They talked about how will anyone enjoy this world unless we have children to enjoy it. The the thinking was a little bit different. And so related to that, a woman who couldn't have a child was almost always, and not just in Jewish understanding, um, but in the surrounding nations seen as somehow cursed by God. So... Many of the ancient cultures, many of the cultures around, as I said, we see in their legal codes, came up with a system to navigate this with a little less shame. And what they would do is they would take somebody from the household of their servants, and they would bear a child through them, and effectively adopt them into the family. Okay? Now that doesn't exchange or change the fact that what Sarai is rep, uh, um, recommending here is that Abram sleep with another woman. So that he can have a child. But in her mind and in the mind of her culture, this will be her child. Now, it says here that she gives this suggestion and then it simply says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now that is not a negative statement in and of itself. It's a very neutral statement and we shouldn't read an intonation into it until we recognize all of the other flavors of Genesis chapter 3. In this passage. When he uses the phrase, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, it's drawing our attention to an occasion earlier where Adam had listened to the voice of Eve. And once again here we see how how it impacts um, their children and things go awry. But the problem in both of those cases is not that a husband listened to his wife, but that a husband did not listen to God and listened to his wife instead. Remember, Abraham has promises given here, and to his credit, in terms of the way the promise has been revealed, all he knows at this point is that it will be one of his sons. You remember remember in the last chapter, God made clear, it will not be your descendant Eliezer that will be or sorry, it will not be your servant Eliezer who will get everything you have, will get the inheritance, but a son from your own body. Okay? However, However, this seems strangely familiar to an occasion a few chapters back where Abraham finds himself in Egypt because there's a famine in the land. God promises, I will bring you here. I will give you this land. I will take care of you. I will be my God. Things seem a little bit dark. Things seem a little bit difficult. God seems a little bit distant. So Abram comes up with a plan and he heads for Egypt and things go awry in the same way here. They are having a hard time charting a line between God's promises way out there and their current circumstances, so they fake it. They detour. They come up with a way that's almost like this, but I want you to recognize the significance of this, because theologically, here's the great reversal of what's going on. God has says, I will do this for you, and Sarai says, maybe what God meant is we should do this for him, okay? That's where the difference really matters, God promises to do something miraculous and they come up with something commonplace to make it happen. Okay? And so that's where the problem in this story really lies but I want you to recognize how much damage is done by this single choice. Notice what happens next. Verse four, he went into Hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that you had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So, Sarai is not pleased with the outcome, even though it's the sought-after outcome. And what it says here is that Hagar, in some way, saw herself now as in higher status than Sarai. Right? She looked at herself and she was carrying the child of her master, unlike old barren Sarai. And so somehow, Sarai picks up on this and she comes to Abraham and she's angry and upset enough that she blames him. Even though it was her idea and she, he had listened to his wife, she's frustrated. Now, as much as we may look down on that, As much as it may remind me, for example, of what Freud said at the end of his days, he said, I only have one question for women, what is it that you want? And this story has that element where Sarai thinks she knows what she wants, where Eve thought the tree looked good and desirable to make one wise, but there's a deception here, it's a self-deception, and many of us, not just the women in the room, many of us can relate to that, but I want you to notice That Abraham doesn't come out of this any better. Notice what he does. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. He just steps out of any possibility of interfering, of trying to come up with a solution. I want to point out to you tonight that sin is complicating. Not complicated, it usually is, but it's always complicating. Later on, we're going to get to the story of Jacob, and Jacob is going to take a detour in his life. He knows that God has given him promises. He, like Sarai here, is going to assert his own plan with his mother's help to try and bring this about to get the blessing from his blind and old father Isaac deceptively. And it's going to lead him out of the country, running from his brother, who's vowed to take his life And by the time he returns, he's not going to have one wife, but two, and two concubines, and through all four women, twelve children. And when he gets back to Bethel, the place where God revealed to him, and he takes his household idols, he kind of comes to himself, he lays aside his past, he returns to the Lord, if you will. What would it be like if you were to sit down as Jacob's counselor? And he were to say, well, I've just recently come back to the Lord. To be honest, I've been straying from him for a long time. And these are my four wives and my 12 children. What do you do then? Okay. I just want you to recognize that even today in all of our glorious wisdom, it's incredibly hard to answer, is it not? And however this was supposed to go now that this has happened and recognize here, there's a pregnant woman at stake. There's a baby on the way. There's no going back. And that's always the way sin is. Once Adam and Eve leave the garden, there's no going back in the garden, right? And we see the same thing here. But I don't necessarily have a better answer, but it's pretty clear to see how bad their answers were. Sarai blames Abraham in anger, and Abraham just steps back and refuses to do anything. Recognize that this unborn child is his child. And by giving Sarai authority, he's putting his child at risk. Recognize that Hagar has done absolutely nothing wrong except what she was commanded to do, which was culturally acceptable, and now she's bearing the brunt, the consequence of what's been done to her. And Abraham refuses to get involved. I heard a preacher say once he effectively had given her husband charge of the first decision, And so now he just gives her the disciplinary role as well. He abdicates the role of not just husband, not just master, but now a father. He sets it all aside. And so what happens? She comes in anger. She asks Abraham to do something. He says, you do it. It's on your shoulders. You do what you want. And what does she do? It says here that she dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. And so it doesn't explain. It's not graphic. It's not explicit. It's not necessary or, um, or uh, the only possibility here that we're talking about physical abuse. But nonetheless, Hagar gets the message, this is not a safe place for her, and she runs. Okay? Now, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, a couple of things here. Shur is a long distance south of even the promised land proper. Wherever it is that Abraham is dwelling in the beginning of chapter 16, this is a very long distance away, okay? We're almost to Mount Sinai at this place, which is, in other words, halfway to Egypt, okay? She's headed home, and she's in the wilderness, and she's pregnant, and she's alone. And it says here that the angel of the Lord found her. Now, notice it doesn't just say any old angel, It says, the angel of the Lord, and this is a title that uh, recurs multiple times in the book of Genesis, in the book of Judges, in fact, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Sometimes it seems that the angel of the Lord is just an angel who's representing God, one who's standing in to deliver a message. We see similar roles in the New Testament with angels that are given names, like the angel Gabriel. We see similar roles in the Old Testament like the angel Michael who comes to visit Daniel. But many times when we look at the passages that refer to the angel of the Lord, what first appears to be an angel then seems to be a lot more like the Lord very quickly. And so what we discover sometimes is that the angel of the Lord speaks as if he was God. In, instead, of, instead of saying, I have a message to you from God, he just speaks in the voice of God we see him receiving worship people falling down at the feet of this angel of the Lord or offering sacrifices to him and unlike the angels in other parts of the Bible that refuse those offerings he doesn't bother to we see oftentimes when the angel of the Lord shows up as we will see here that the people are surprised they survived and they always give the same reason because I have seen the Lord And so it's possible here that what we are seeing is um, what theologians sometimes call a theophany, an appearance of God. It's not really that abnormal or surprising. We had a theophany in chapter 15, as Abraham has this vision of the fiery torch and the smoking furnace passing through the sacrifice. But obviously, this is a little bit more anthropomorphic. In fact, most of the time that the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament, he's at first mistaken for a man, and then an angel, and then discovered to be something more, okay? Now, let's look at what happens in this particular story. It says that the angel of the Lord found her. Now, I want you to just realize God is looking for Hagar. Abraham's abandoned his post. Sarai's driven her out of the tent. But God goes after Hagar. A runaway slave. Now, verse 8. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, I want you to notice first what seems like a statement of clear knowledge, right? Random pregnant woman in the wilderness and this angel of the Lord so-called knows her by name, knows where she came from. Servant of Sarai. But then, a statement of ignorance. Where have you come from and where are you going? This already puts us in mind of the other times where God has interrogated Adam, Cain. Over and over in the story, God has spoken. And so here, the idea is engaging with Hagar, not for the sake of knowledge, but to start the conversation. And so I want you to notice here that unlike Adam, who says, oh, well, it's the woman that you gave me. Unlike Cain, who said, am I my brother's keeper? Hagar responds very positively, and she's just honest. She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, to be honest, I can feel the cackles on the back of your neck as easily as you can when we come to a situation like this, which is full of injustice and abuse, where we have a runaway slave who's running for her life and the first thing that God tells her to do is go back and submit. But I want you to notice that that's not all that he says here. That's where he starts, but it's clearly not where he ends. Notice as he continues here, he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And so this is not merely, this is not merely go back to your harsh mistress, although there's no guarantee here, right? That it's going to be a safer circumstance. This is not merely submission, it's what's necessary for slaves, although that's still put on the table here that she owes a responsibility to her mistress. But what God reveals to Hagar here is that even in the midst of these nasty circumstances, he's going to do good. What he says is, go back and I will multiply your offspring. I have a plan for your unborn baby, Ishmael. So go back. And what does that imply? It implies some level of safety. Now, this is a narrow path that we're walking and There's Mistakes on both sides, okay? The promise that's made here is one that that best reads in the biblical term endurance, okay? It's that whatever's going to happen, Hagar's going to make it through with God's help. And the finish line of what God has is good. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's more than an Egyptian servant could ever imagine. But it doesn't excuse the difficulty, it doesn 't even change the circumstance wouldn 't we rather that God went to Sarai and Abram and said, Hey, what you just did is not right. You need to go and send out a search party, but that 's not what happens here, okay? but nonetheless, before you write this off as being um, you know somehow oppressive in a way that the man just keeps you know uh, those in a lower position down recognize here that that's that's an oversimplification of what's going on. He gives more clarification in verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You should call his name Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. You should call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, you should take solace in that. You should take comfort in that. It's something that we've already seen. It's something that we'll see before we finish the night. again, it's the fact that when injustice happens, no- God notices. OK Here's a pregnant woman all alone, completely isolated, out in the wilderness, and God knows. she's crying, she's crying out because of injustice. she's fleeing from problems, and God hears. Now he gives us a description of what Ishmael is going to be like. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and every, everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, wild donkey of a man doesn't sound like a compliment, and it's probably not. But it's not as negative as we might think. If you have an older translation, it says a wild ass of a man, and that might read too much of our modern English into it. The idea of a wild donkey of a man is somebody who pays no attention to precedent, cultural standards, just does his own thing, okay? He's going to be one of a kind. And with that is going to come a good deal of conflict, but I want you to notice that the conflict will not stop him. That's what it says here. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen, okay? So even for Ishmael, it's a difficult road, but a road nonetheless. And so here we get the beginning of Ishmael, Abram's first son. And these descendants continue to settle into the land um, and they will enter into the story at another point. But let's continue. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God of seeing. For she said, truly here I've seen him who looks after me, or literally, truly here, I've seen him who sees me. Okay? Therefore, the well, this is where she was found by a well, was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Okay? Beer Lahairoi means the the well of the God who sees. And so, what I want you to notice here is both that she recognizes and feels noticed by God, taken care of by God, seen by God, but she also sees that she has seen the Lord, right? It has that same emphasis that we find in other places. Now, verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son who Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I want you to notice something that's missing in verse 15. It's Sarai, right? If you go back and you read the beginning of the story, the idea was Hagar will have a son and he will be mine. That's off the table. That's no longer the issue. But nonetheless, the author here recognizes the fact that Ishmael is Abram's son. Abram recognizes the fact that Ishmael is his son. He names him uh, based, no doubt, on what Hagar has told him. Uh, And so here we are. And I want you to notice the timestamp. At this point, Abram was 86, so this is 11 years officially since he left the land, and here we go, a son, just as God's promised. Now, to be honest, I have no idea how Abram feels about this whole thing. We'll see some times where he looks back on this that will give us some clarity, but whether he feels like this is what God promised, even though it was weird, or whether he feels like he's completely blown it and failed it, and now God's totally, you know, let go of the whole plan. We're not told, but that timestamp is there so that we can read how much longer until the next timestamp. Notice verse one of chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, now I've told you before that when we read this book quickly, it can feel like God was constantly showing up for tea. It can feel like a normal part of Abram's life was the presence of God and constant revelation and fellowship. But when you pay attention to the timeline and even when you scatter all of the stories across 25 years, um, there's a lot of silence in the text. And here we get one of the clearest delineations of that silence from when he is 86 in chapter 16 to when he is 99 in chapter 17. That's 13 years. That's more years than we've read about So far, okay? All of the activity of Genesis from chapter 12 through chapter 16 happens in 11 years and then 13 years of silence. And suddenly God appears to Abram again. You have to keep that context in mind. Notice what God says. I am God Almighty. The title there is El Shaddai and this is the first time that it's used. It's very, very difficult for us to know where the shad part of that name comes from. El is the name that's used throughout the book of Genesis for God. Like El Yon, God Most High, we saw with Melchizedek. But El Shaddai is a complex name of two parts, and the shad part is very heavily debated. Okay. Some believe that it, po- uh, uh, that it points to some sort of omnipotence and power. And the reason they do that is because shad has to do with the idea of mountain. But, for reasons that are probably obvious to you, shad also has to do with the idea of breast. Okay? And so, it's hard to tell here if the idea is one of provision or one of power. It's hard to tell if the name here is more masculine in its imagery or feminine. What's most important, though, is every time this name is used of God in the New Testament almost without fail it deals with God miraculously giving children it deals with the promise of multiple descendants and so the title here is um, a title God takes for himself to talk about this big promise he has for Abraham that the plan is to bring children and plenty of them Okay. And so he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I might make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Now here is where the interpretive problem comes in. God suddenly appears after 13 years, speaks to him profoundly, identifies himself with a new name, calls and reminds Abraham of the covenant made in chapter 15 and Abram falls on his face, okay? Now, clearly, that is a manifestation of humility, a manifestation of worship, but the question is, how is Abram feeling? If we were psychologically trying to guess here, there's a couple of possibilities. He can be overwhelmed by the fact that God is back, that God still has anything for him, because he knows what his track record is culminating in this detour that leads to Ishmael. He may be overwhelmed uh, because um, because God's plan isn't finished. So everything he's experienced yet is not the fulfillment. God still has more. Okay, this could be like that scene, uh, you know, in so many Oprah episodes where you think you've seen it all, but there's more. Right? It's hard to tell. But either way, Abram is overwhelmed. Now, what God does here is he begins to speak to Abram and he takes everything we already know. Remember, the gist of it is descendants, the gist of it is descendants many, the gist of it is a nation to come from you, the gist of it is uh, that you will be blessed, and all of those components here are built on. They're specified. They're um, explained and extenuated. And so notice as he continues here in verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That's the first step up. A nation will come from you, we've already read, but now it's nations plural. Now I want you to recognize that part of the reason, if you know the story already, that it's nations plural is Ishmael. And that's striking. The fact that God honors Ishmael and promises to bless that line despite the shady way and circumstances that that came out in is striking. But it's probably not all there is. We're going to see lots of offshoots of Abraham's descendants that become other nations. Edom, for example, from Esau's line. But nonetheless here he Ups the game from I will turn you into a nation to I will bring from you a multitude of nations. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Now, Abram means exalted father, which is a hard name to bear for an old man with no children and a barren wife. But even at this point in his life, he has a single child, a son, a son. And God says, I'm changing your name, Abram. You were Abram, exalted father. Now you will be father of a multitude. Okay? And so it's a striking name change. Now, names in the Old Testament are always and constantly significant. They either speak of the expectation of the parents, like we saw with Lamech, who names his son Noah, rest, for in his days God will give the people rest from the curse. Or sometimes their destiny, like Jacob, right Jacob is given this name and the name is just describing what happened in his birth that they're twins Esau's born first but as he's coming out of his mother's womb Jacob's hand is holding on to his ankle and that's effectively that picture is effectively what the name Jacob means it means to grab the heel but that idea of a Jacob who wrestles that idea of a conniving Jacob becomes exactly who he is he lives up if you will to his name but there are many occasions in the bible where god Interferes and gives a new name. For example, Jacob, although that may be his destiny and he lives there for years, eventually he wrestles with God and God changes his name to Israel, a prince of God, or maybe possibly he who wrestles with God and prevails. And here he takes this name and already we're getting a hint that God's not finished with Abram, that he has blessed him, but he has more. Now, he continues on here, and he says in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now, there's something you might not pick up there, but we've seen a pattern in the book of Genesis. Starting with Adam, Adam is Adam Mark 1. He's the prototype, right? God's destiny for humankind sits on the shoulders of Adam, and so he's given the command to be fruitful and multiply. When we get to Noah, we kind of get Adam Mark 2, right? A fresh slate, a new world, a garden again, a man and his family. And they're given the same command, be fruitful and multiply. But notice here, God doesn't call Abraham to be fruitful and multiply, which would be relatively offensive to a man with no children. Instead, what does he say here? He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. This is the first hint we get. That the great ambition and promises that were given to Adam and to Noah are now going to be uniquely fulfilled through the people of Israel. Okay? And here the difference is not go and do, but I will do. Is not you need to accomplish, but I'm going to do. Right? Do you see the tr- transition here? This here, as we saw in chapter 12, as we saw in chapter 15, chapter 17, all which focus on the covenant, This is where God starts to roll out his plan that he began by promising all the way back to Adam and Eve when he says, I'm going to do something about this. So, what does he say here in verse 7? And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now, this is a step up as well. It sounds really familiar, but in actuality here, he says that the covenant is not just for Abraham, but for Abraham's children. In fact, he calls it here for the first time an everlasting covenant, okay? And it continues on here, and he says, what is the covenant? Halfway through verse 7, to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So even here it's specified more. Uh, in chapter 14, when Abraham and or sorry, in chapter thirteen, when Abraham and Lot separate, remember God takes them up on a hill and he says, Look in every direction, this is the land I'm giving you. But here it's labeled, it's titled. And we know even from the ancient world around, Egypt refers to the land of Canaan, and it actually describes its boundaries, and they're the same boundaries that the Bible talks about, okay? So now the boundaries are drawn very specifically, and even this, it refers to it as an everlasting possession. Now, what we see is constantly, because of Israel's rejection of God, that land becoming subject to spitting them out. And so we have the exile into Babylon. And then we have their return. And now we're in another period exactly like that. In 70 AD, Titus leads a Roman army into Jerusalem and they level it flat. And until the 1960s, Israel lived completely without a land. But here the promise is given that there is an everlasting promise. That God's land for the property of Israel is eternal. It's totally subject to Israel's behavior. So, I'm not trying to justify some sort of new peace plan where we just say, "Ah, God gave them the nation. It's not that simple. But I want you to recognize here that God's not done with the promises fulfilled here. And actually, the existence of Israel itself is an incredible testimony to the truth of the Bible and the power of God. Because we have no other example of a people group that maintains their religion, their language, their culture, all of it, without a land for over, for over 1,900 years. It's incredible. But it's also exactly what God said. And even Paul, after, after Jesus comes, after the church takes on this role that is surprisingly similar and using the same terminology as the people of Israel, even there he says, God's not done with Israel yet. And there will come a time when all Israel is saved. He talks about this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'd encourage you to read it. But part of the reason that Paul is so convinced is right here. Because the covenant that's given is a permanent covenant. And there are stipulations. But the biblical prophets, not just here in Genesis, but when we get into the prophets proper, they maintain the same thing, that there's still a future for Israel. And so here, verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you should keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You should be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so here we're given the sign of circumcision. And I want you to recognize that this is a sign of a pre-existing covenant. This is how Paul reads it in Romans chapter 4. He says, look, the promises that are given to Abraham, those are in chapter 15. But the sign of circumcision doesn't come until chapter 17. And so Abram himself has been an inheritor of the promises before the sign of circumcision exists at all. And this is important to Paul because what he's trying to point out is it's not circumcision that saved Abram. And it's not circumcision that saves people. It's faith. And circumcision is merely an outward representation of that. As it says right here, it's a sign of the covenant. Now in terms of the act of its act itself, it is the removal of a small portion of skin from the penis, and at first, once again, it seems incredibly foreign to us, maybe even more than it did 20 years ago, because 20 years ago, it was still considered to be a medically positive procedure, and so it was uncommon or not uncommon even outside of religious circles. But remember, well, two things. One, lots of circumcision in the ancient world. In fact, parts of Asia and northern Europe are the only places where we don't have ancient records of the practice of circumcision. It was relatively broadly used, not everywhere, but we find pockets of its practice everywhere. However, Um, However, it is distinctly valuable here because remember what the covenant is. The promise is about being fruitful. I will make you fruitful. And so here's this direct and visible reminder of it. Have you ever wondered why this could be a sign of the covenant when it's such a private thing? Like we rightly don't imagine people vetting who they let into the event by showing the sign of being a part of the club, right? That's not how this worked. But in the sexual act between a husband and wife, there was a constant reminder to the Jew of God's promise, of fruitfulness, of blessing, okay? Now, here's another thing that's unique about circumcision in how it's laid out here. Notice what he says in verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who's not of your offspring. So the entirety of the household... As young as eight days old was to, uh, all the males were to be circumcised. When we look at circumcision in all of the other cultures um, in the area, and when we look at it across the world, it's almost always a mark of status. Whether that status is the progress from child to man, or that status is from uninitiated to initiated. Uh, It's always something that you go through that demonstrates you're on the inside and not on the outside. And that's clearly part of what's going on here. But notice how comprehensive it is. All the males, not just the Jews, but the ones of your household. And even if you bring a foreigner into your household and they become a part of your household by marriage or they become your servant, they're to be circumcised as well and as young as eight days. In other words, the promise is for your descendants holistically. The offering is present and presented to all of you. He says, So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so he does say here that it's important. He does draw it as as a line of demarcation, a border between inside and out, and one that has consequence. Recognize here at this point, all that Abraham's people have been called to do, all that his descendants have been called to do to keep the covenant is this one thing, circumcision. Okay? But as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter four, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. In other words, it's a sign of faith. Okay? This is an entry point and it's, it's familial in nature. We can't imagine that an eight-year-old child recognizes right, the significance of this act, but they're part of the community. And what God is doing, starting with Abraham, is developing a community that he's going to send the Messiah to. Okay? And so this demarcation, this delineation is made. Now, God's not done yet. Verse 15, God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you should not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, at this point, we feel like we're done. This comes as a total surprise. In fact, even the way it's written is surprising because there's probably no difference in meaning between Sarai and Sarah. They're just spelling differences. Like you can imagine today in many names. My wife's name is Brittany. That doesn't mean you know how to spell it, okay? They're very close here. But why does she get a name change? Because the promise is not just for Abram. The promise is not just for Abraham and his new name. Sarai has a part to play. Sarah gets a name change too. What God is about to say changes both of their lives. And I just want you to recognize here that there's no Abram after this point, and there's no Sarai. There's just something new. They never go back to their old names, and the authors of Genesis never refer to them before this as Abraham and Sarah, and after this is Abram and Sarai. It's a delineation, it's a definitive line. So what does he say here in verse 16? "I will bless her." And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she b- will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, this is mind-blowing for so many reasons. At this point, Abram is 99. Okay? As we'll find out in just a minute, Sarah is, is past menopause. She's beyond, beyond bearing. And on top of that, they've already messed up really big in trying to fulfill God's promise on their own through Hagar. Nonetheless, God just, he clarifies the plan. He makes it very explicit that Sarah has a part in it here. He changes her name to recognize what he's doing here. And notice how Abram responds in verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Now, we're not told the motive or the sentiment behind this laughing. Okay, this could be laughing of joy, right? That he's just overwhelmed by such a miraculous promise. And it's worthwhile to think that that's possible because God at this point has a pretty good track record. Okay, but it's also possible that what's going on here is, is nothing more than unbelief. That he just thinks this is a ridiculous promise that God would make. Nonetheless, though, this is the first hint we get at the name Isaac, which means to laugh. And we'll see why, not only here, but as it continues on. And so notice here, he he laughs, and then notice what he says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abram says, God, this, this promise is great and everything, but I've already got Ishmael. Can't you just bless him? Can't you just use him? I've already got a son. Isn't this enough? And we don't know if he's trying to do God a favor here and say, Look, what you're offering to do is incredible, but... That's the problem. It's totally incredible. It's unbelievable. Ishmael is fine. Can't he just live before you? Or maybe he's recognizing here that after 13 years, he has a good deal of love for his firstborn son, and he doesn't want to see him slighted through something else. We're not told what's going on here, but I want you to notice how God responds. Despite the fact that God says to Hagar, I will bless Ishmael, despite the fact that God includes Ishmael in the many nations that are going to come from Abraham and watches over him, what does he answer here? He says, no. God said no. That's what it says in verse 19. And I think this is really important because one of the ways that we try and clean up our messes as Christians, when we go about doing what God has promised to do for us by trying to accomplish it ourselves, is we say, can't you just use it anyways? I mean, I've already made a mess of things, but can't you just pick up the pieces and build something nice? Sometimes... Sometimes God says yes. There are messes that become incredible blessings. Jacob's sons, through those four wives, become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, and that's, that's part and parcel with the plan. It's where things are going. Um, we're going to see some crazy messes in the genealogy that we've been following. So Judah refuses to give his third son to his first son's wife, based on practice, because his first son doesn't have a child and dies, so she marries the second son, and then he dies, and now Judah's worried if there's something going on, you know, like, is she that bad of a cook? Whatever it is, he's worried about giving another child to her, so he just puts her away and forgets about it. And Tamar takes things into her own hands, dresses up like a prostitute, knowing where her father will be uh, during the harvest, and he sleeps with her, and he gets her pregnant. And then when he finds out his daughter-in-law, who's supposedly waiting for his third son, is pregnant, he threatens to put her to death. And she brings forward this evidence that he's the father. And he goes, you've been more righteous than I have. But that's not just a crazy story in the book of Genesis. That's Judah. And that's the lineage of Judah. And that leads directly to Jesus. Okay? However, however... There is another aspect, there's another way that we can look at this, and it's demonstrated right here, where what we can do for God is not always God's plan, and he's going to say no. We have to be fully, willing, completely to lay aside the mess that we've made and start fresh, lean again on the promises of God. I actually love this. It can be super uncomfortable. It's very difficult. and involves a lot of embarrassment, if not shame. But the reason I love it is because God is so devoted to his plans, you're not going to interfere with them. He's so devoted to do what he's going to do. Nothing has derailed him from the initial promise. What was the promise? I'm going to miraculously give you a child, Abraham. And so Abraham goes, well, let me put everything at risk by, by selling Sarah. To another man and pretending she's only my sister, and God says, No, that's not going to work. I've still got a promise for you. And then Hagar happens and Ishmael, and God says, No, that's not the plan. I have something better. But at this point, aren't you asking yourself, What in the world was God waiting for? 24 years since the promise was given, and now He gets specific, now He gets clear, now He says, Okay, now is the time. Why? Clearly, one of the reasons is because it gave Abraham the opportunity to grow in faith. He's learned over this duration of time that God is trustworthy, and he's also learned that he can go about things and try and do things on his own, but that's not what God is talking about. On top of that, why would God wait for Sarah to pass into menopause? Okay, because this kid is now definitively miraculous. There's no other explanation. Okay, it's not that Sarah has a hard time having children. She was barren and now she's postmenopausal. Okay, she's no longer capable of having kids. It's then when God works. God had promised at the beginning that, that the nation of Israel was going to be unique. And to demonstrate that, he does it miraculously. So look at what he says here. He says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. Laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So notice here, he says, the covenant flows through Isaac. But as for Ishmael, verse 20, I have heard you, behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham then Abram took Ishmael and his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among them, of men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him. What is that? It's obedience, clearly, but what's behind the obedience? It's faith. Right here, Abram says, I hear what you're offering God, and I want it. And he enters into it. Verse 24, Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abram and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from foreigners, were circumcised with him. Does it sound a little repetitive? Okay, It's trying to emphasize uh, the pattern that we've seen before. Incredible promises given by God. Obedience. Now, as we get into chapter 18 and 19, um, these chapters go together. The characters involved with these men that come to Abraham are the same ones that walk through the gates of Sodom in chapter 19. And actually, chapter 18 and 19 are probably the most literary, uh, probably the most intricate literature I'm aware of in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis. We've talked in the past about how um, Hebrew authors, when they wrote their stories, extensively use structure and illusion. And so they refer to things we've already talked about using the same vocabulary, and then they use structure to organize their story just so. You may remember that the story of the flood is chiastic in nature. And so it starts and it ends at the same place. And you can see that in the most simple details, that the flood water rises and then the flood water retreats. But the story is told perfectly, scene by scene, in parallel sections. And so one and the end are exactly the same, and two and right before the end are exactly the same. That's a chiastic structure. We find that here. And so we find as the story escalates, uh, specifically starting in verse 16, we have Abraham looking out over Sodom, and the story in 19 will end with Abraham looking out over Sodom. And so there's this chiastic structure, but on top of that, the author does something else. He runs both of the stories perfectly parallel. And so chapter 18 is Abraham has this conversation of hospitality We see it play out again, although completely different, in chapter 19. And so in 18, the angels come in and he makes them a feast. In 19, they come into Sodom, Lot makes them a feast. In 18, Abraham intercedes for the righteous in Sodom. In 19, uh, Lot intercedes for for this little town, Zoar, because he doesn't want to run so far and he'd like to just go to this little town. And so the parallels are set up here to contrast between the two chapters. But that's simultaneous to this chiastic structure that runs through the story. And on top of that, this passage from 18 all the way through 19 is full of the terminology from the flood. So when fire and brimstone falls from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, it rains down. Okay? And that's not the only place where we find these same, same words. When Lot uh, flees into his household and it says that the angel shut the door, it's the exact same phrase for God shutting the door in Noah. So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot that the author is thinking about and wants us to think about. But I wanted to point it out primarily because, um, because Hebrew literature is so intricate and we don't always see that. The writing of the book of Genesis is filled with intention. It's not just you know um, journalism. It's, it's not just journals. It's intentionally laid out to carry the plot to make points, to pull the three themes through the entire book, it's extensively um, valuable to study deeply. Chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So at first it just says that the Lord appeared to him, but that's for us. Abraham doesn't know that at this point. It's similar to the book of Job, where the book of Job pulls back the curtain and shows us what's going on from the heavenly perspective, and then puts us in the seat of Job and his friends who don't get the opportunity to see what we've seen. And so we're told out the gate that the Lord is appealing to, appearing to Abraham, but Abraham looks up and he just sees, sees three men, Okay. Now, notice what it says in verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, when he says Lord there, he's using just the normal term that you'd use out of respect for a person you respected. Okay? Nonetheless, we see him responding incredibly respectful to this man. He actually falls on his knees and he says, if I've found favor in your sight, please stay with me. It continues here. He says in verse four, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. Okay. There's one word that fits what we're seeing here, even though it's so foreign, it's hospitality. Remember how different this culture is. Abraham probably doesn't see visitors all that often. He lives out uh, in in a shepherding land, you know, where there's people around. But when people pass by, what we're seeing here is just Abraham's normal, receptive hospitality. But it's overwhelmingly in depth. It involves tremendous respect. Uh, he speaks. He calls it a morsel of bread, and the, or a morsel of bread, and then he slaughters an entire cow. For three people. Okay, so it's got this this um, you know diminution of speech where you say very little about what you have to offer and then you offer a lot. Um, notice what happens next. Listen to the hurry involved in what happens next. Uh, verse five. Uh, so they said, "Do as you've said." Verse six. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, "Quick." Three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf and he prepared it and set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So now he rushes around preparing this feast and then I want you to notice he doesn't sit down to eat it with him. It says that he stood by the tree where he had left them and watches them eat. Does that sound familiar? Have you seen Downton Abbey? Right? he's standing by in case they need anything. His only posture, his only position is one of service. Okay? Now all of this is to lay out hospitality and this is why in the book of Hebrews it tells us that we should entertain strangers because some have entertained angels unaware. Okay? This is the story that's being referred to. But I want you to recognize how high the bar of hospitality is set. Abraham is a picture of hospitality. While, while they're eating, verse 9, they said to him, Where's Sarah, your wife? First clue that these are more than strangers. Where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old Advanced in years, the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. That's their way of saying menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And so they ask where Sarah is. She's in the tent. This guy says, the Lord says, Less than a year now. The countdown clock has started. By this time next year, you're going to have a little boy. Sarah hears this. Notice she doesn't say this aloud. She thinks to herself, ridiculous in my age in his age you really think this is going to happen now notice what happens next verse 12 so sarah laughed to herself saying after i'm worn out and my lord is old shall i have pleasure and the lord said to Abraham, why did sarah laugh and say shall i indeed bear a child now that i am old okay second clue that there's more going on here than meets the eye at the appointed time i will return to you about this time next year and sarah shall have a son But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, a lot of times, Sarah gets a total slap on the wrist here for laughing at this going on. And it's usually rooted in the fact that God calls her out on it. But what he calls her out on here is not the laughter, it's the deception. Right? We're seeing the same interrogation that we've seen before from God to his people. We're seeing the same all-knowing God who puts questions to people that he already knows the answers of. But here, Sarah just gives an outright denial. And she says, oh, I didn't say that. Why? Because she was afraid. And I want you to notice here that there's no consequence listed. The Lord just speaks to her and says, oh, yeah, you did, right? It's just, it's, it's a lot more monotonal than we might think. But the point here is, whether Abraham had told Sarah or not, about the covenant in chapter 17. Here, it's made clear from the Lord directly to her. Now, before we move on, we have to recognize here, we have the Lord and two men, quote, unquote, okay? And we'll find out that these two men are the ones that go on into Sodom and then they're labeled angels, okay? And so this is an entourage, if you will. But it is very interesting in this passage that the pronouns are messy and so sometimes Abraham says to the Lord and sometimes he says to them all and sometimes they all do something and sometimes it's just the Lord there's an ambiguity here that's incredibly interesting and it doesn't stop in chapter 18 it's clear to me especially by the time we get to the very end of chapter 19 that there's something more than merely just the angel of the Lord and two random angels going on here It's not enough to say that what we have here is Trinitarian in nature, that these three are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or represent the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the fact that God is personified in more than just one is clearly on the page, okay? So this all goes down, but that's only phase one. Phase one is to reiterate this promise. Phase two starts in verse 16. The men set out from there, And they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. Now, later the Bible says on a couple of occasions that God never does anything without telling his prophets first. Okay? And so the idea here is that God always says, here's what I'm going to, excuse me, here's what I'm going to do, and then he does it. You can read about this being a defense of the character of God and the evidence of God in the book of Isaiah, especially in the 40s. But in the same way here, he looks at Abraham, he knows that Abraham's descendants are the people of Israel, are us. And so the question here is, is for their sake, for the descendants' sake, knowing that Abraham is going to have this lineage, should I hide it from him? And so he starts this dialogue with Abraham. Verse 19, for I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. And the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that's come to me. And if not, I will know. Now the language there, basically God says, there's a problem in Sodom. I'm going to take care of it, right? What we're seeing, once again, is the God who sees, and it's the God who sees injustice, but it's also the God who brings judgment on injustice. But I want you to notice that it's put in anthropomorphic terms. Why is that the case? Does he not know what's going on in Sodom? Does he really have to go and be a, you know, investigate it for himself? Notice how strong the language is at the end. He says, if not, if the outcry isn't real, I'll know. Okay, clearly, especially because of what comes next, what we have here is a defense of God's justice. Okay. And so it's put in this language because the idea is that God will do justly. And so it puts it in terms that we can understand that there's going to be an investigation that's opened and that even at this point, it's not too late for Sodom to turn around, but there will be justice. Now, verse 22, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abram still stood before the Lord. Then Abram drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So Abram hears this, he hears it for his descendants, and he asks this question. He asks God about his justice. Now, remember here that Abram has personal investment in the people of Sodom because that's where his nephew Lot lives, as we'll find out in just a minute. And so he comes and the question he asks is, Because of the city of Sodom's wickedness, are the just just going to be puffed out like the righteous, or sorry, like the unrighteous? He says, Are you going to just wipe it all out despite the fact that there's a few good people there? How does this work, Lord? Verse twenty three. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there's 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? So what he says here is, what if, what if there's a small remnant? What if in the whole city there's 50 people who are good, who haven't bought into the injustice, who aren't participating in the wickedness? Will you wipe out the entire city and, and not, um, you know, uh, and do the same to those righteous? Notice as he continues in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. He just says it's incomprehensible. God doesn't even say anything yet. Abraham just can't reconcile a just God with this scenario. And so God responds. He says, verse 26, the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Okay? Now we transition there from justice to mercy. Notice it's not just the righteous that are spared, but the entire city. That if there's truly 50 righteous people living in Sodom, the city in whole, in total, will survive. And before we move on, I want to just point out one thing. What happens in Sodom and Gomorrah is probably best labeled a temporal punishment. Okay? It's judgment that happens here and now. Right? That is not directly connected to eternal judgment, and it does not, uh, it's not instead of eternal judgment, and it's not necessitated along with eternal judgment. Okay? There's a good deal of mercy God has that the Bible constantly points to, but when the scores are tallied at the end of the world, when we get to that time called post-time, justice will be done. Okay? And the Bible is clear on that. And so we have to recognize here, this is not about heaven and hell. This is about God putting to stop present tense injustice. And once again, the Bible maintains that God sees, that God cares, and that he is the one who dethrones the oppressor, that he is the one who defeats the wicked. In fact, even when he uses the people of Babylon as his vessel of judgment on his people Israel, that doesn't give them a free pass. And he says, they're going to be judged for their behavior, even though he utilizes them as a tool of judgment, okay? But nonetheless, incredibly here, he says, if there's even 50, I will spare the entire city. You cannot get away from the concept in this passage that God has a bent towards mercy, that he desires to be merciful. I love it in the old King James and one of the prophets, it refers to judgment as God's peculiar practice. And the word there means it's, it's not foreign to his character because he's just. The judgment goes along with justice. It has to. But, but mercy, mercy gives us a better window into who God is. And look at Abraham doesn't stop here. Verse 29, uh, 27. Abraham said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord and I'm but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I'll not destroy it if I find forty-five there. So Abraham boldly presses on and he decreases the number. Now, Abraham here is an intercessor. That's what's happening. This is not just a hypothetical conversation. He's concerned about Sodom, he's concerned about Lot, he's concerned about the righteous, and so he's praying intercessory prayer. Okay, he's interceding to the Lord. There's a really scary passage in the book of Ezekiel where God is looking at all of his people, Israel, and he says, I looked everywhere, in every town, for anyone who would intercede for my people, and there was none. So Abraham, in a beautiful way here, operates as this intercessor, and God hears his prayer and he responds to it. Notice what it says next. Verse 29, again he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I'll not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I'll not do it, if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I'll not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. So he whittles it all the way down to 10 and God maintains that if there's any, even 10 people in Sodom, he won't destroy it. Why are we getting this story at all? Okay, there's this assumption sometimes that Christians and that the Bible it is lighthearted when it comes to judgment, that God is just so full of wrath, especially in the Old Testament, that it's just judgment and consequence, left and right, and that God meets it out almost what appears heartlessly. But if you read it carefully, you always find in the same places where judgment is being played out, this reality here. You find incredible patience, like we saw with the flood. Like you see with the history of Israel, where it's hundreds of years before the warnings of what God is going to do come to pass. Like you see in the Apostle Peter, when he says, Do not think that God is slow in fulfilling his promises to send Jesus back and to set things right but God is long-suffering and he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Now, just a simple statement here. Patience is only patience if it can come to an end. If it never ends, if it can't be run out, if the clock can't run down, it's not patience, it's indifference. But God is tremendously patient. And here we see God is tremendously merciful. So, He says, for the sake of ten. Now, Lot has a family. Ten's not a hard mark to reach. But look at how the story continues. Verse 33. The Lord went his way when he'd finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels, okay, the two that left earlier, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the story starts over here and it's very similar to what we read about Abraham. Abraham was sitting in his, in his tents and the angels come up and look at how, uh, how Lot responds here. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed to him with his face to the earth, just like Abraham, and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise up early and go on your way. Very similar to Abraham. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast, and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. And so we already have a little bit of hesitation here, but I want you to recognize the hesitation's not necessarily with Lot. We're told a lot more about Abraham's hospitality, but this is probably just summary. There's no reason to believe that Lot is skimping on the portions here. There's no reason to believe. The hesitation that makes us nervous, though, uh, is that the angels aren't really willing to stay with Lot, and they say, we're going to stay in the square. And he says, that is not a good idea. You have to come with me. It says he presses them urgently. We have to recognize here, that's probably not Lot's hospitality speaking. That's his common sense, okay? He knows what his city is like, and he says, look, there may be other towns where it's okay to sleep outside on the streets. Not here. You got to come stay with me. It's the first hint that something's wrong. So they have dinner. What happened after dinner in Abraham's case? This incredible conversation, right? About these promises that are given. But what happens here? Verse four. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. And so what we see here is that all of the men in the city, and when it says both young and old, that's uh, that's a way of saying all the men, okay? The youngest to the oldest, okay? It probably doesn't mean absolutely every single member, but it means the city came out in its totality. They surround the house and they say, hey, where are those men we saw you take into your house earlier? Bring them out so that we may know them. It doesn't say here, bring them out so we may get to know them, okay? This is a... um, an idiom for sexual behavior, just like Adam knew his wife and she conceived, okay? And so the idea here is that what Sodom hospitality looks like is rape. That's what's going on here, that the way that they treat visitors um, is abuse, Now it says in verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. So you can picture this, can't you? He squeezes his way out and he shuts the door with his visitors behind him and he speaks to the city. And this is what he says in verse 7, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who I have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they've come under the shelter of my roof. Now so much explanation is needed. Just a few things. First off, in the ancient world, hospitality really was a big deal and all of the legal requirements for what was expected if somebody let you into their home included protection, okay? That does not justify the offer that Lot makes here, okay? What he basically says is, I've got two virgin daughters. Even me handing them over is better than giving over these men. Nowhere in the Bible does it applaud that behavior and I'll let you in on a little secret. Lot is a total mess, Okay, The contrast that's being presented between Abraham and Lot continuously has been pointing that way. And I'll add this, that his daughters right now are being handed over as objects of sexual abuse. They're going to turn it around on their father by the end of the story. Okay. This is not good family practice, and it's not seen as good family practice. Okay. What we're seeing for the first time is it's not just Lot living in Sodom, but to some degree Sodom living in Lot. He's come to a place of compromise where he's trying to maintain things. But like I told you, sin is complicated very quickly. And so his only options here on the table are very, very limited. And so he says, behold, I have these two daughters. Let me bring them out and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they've come under the shelter of my roof. Now, let me say one more thing about that. There's only a slight difference between this and what we saw Abraham doing when he's in Egypt. And he says, hey, Sarah, say you're my sister so that they don't take my life, right? There's self-preservation here going on. There's things going on here. But verse nine, they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And so they say, we're not gonna have any of your righteousness. We're not interested in your sense of justice. You're just a foreigner. You're just a stranger. You're an alien here. Now, when it says that he's become a judge, it may be just referring to the fact that he said, don't do so wickedly. But when we see him at the beginning of the story, he's sitting in the gates of the city, which is the place where the elders of the city would, would um, pass judgment. So if people were having a problem, they'd come to the elders in the gates and they'd be heard and there'd be a decision made out. It may be that at this point, Lot is not just living in Sodom, he's in the leadership of the city. But now, even that won't stop what's going on. And so they threaten to do even worse than they'd planned to Lot himself. And notice what happens next in verse 10. Um, Sorry, halfway through verse 9. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. And so here the angels operate as angels and they interfere Okay. And it, it doesn't tell us exactly what happened. The word for blindness here is not even the normal word for blindness. It means blinding like blinding light. Okay. But the idea here is that they can't, they can't find the door at this point, and eventually they give up trying. Now, before we get to the judgment of Sodom, there is something we have to deal with here, because it's become traditional, um, even cultural, to see the sin of Sodom as being primarily homosexuality. Now, clearly, that's an oversimplification, okay, because this isn't about consensual sex of heterosexual or homosexual variety. It's something very different than that. On top of that, it's clear that part of what's being told in this story, as we already saw in Abraham's story, has to do with how you treat strangers, right, hospitality, okay? Those are the clearest things on the table. Um, And so there are those who say, look, homosexuality is not part of this passage at all, and that's too far in the other direction. To say this is merely about homosexuality is an oversimplification. To say it's not about homosexuality at all is as well. And the reason I say that is because this is not the last time the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and when it does, it tells us more. So for example, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel is a prophet later in the days of Israel. He's actually trying to convince Israel how far they've fallen And so he uses Sodom as a picture, not to condemn Sodom, but to condemn Israel. And it's important to keep that in mind. But he gives us a description of exactly what it is that was going on in Sodom. And this is what he says. He says in verse 48, As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you, and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride Excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Pride, an excess of food, and they didn't take care of the needy. It continues on and it says in verse 50, They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So there are those who would say, look... Ezekiel doesn't say anything about the sexuality of this. What he says is that they had an abundance, that they were lazy, that they were filled with pride, and that they neglected the poor and the needy. So isn't that what's going on here? And isn't that what we just read? And at first I'd say yes, but it is interesting here that Ezekiel adds, but they did an abomination. Now don't think you know where I'm going here because, I, because there's, there's important things that you need to keep in mind, okay? First off, Here he uses abomination in the singular. Throughout the rest of the chapter, all the way into 18, throughout the entire book, he uses abominations, plural, all the time. He uses it to refer to the idolatry of Israel, to all sorts of behaviors, but here it refers in the singular to abomination. And it's the only place in the book where it does. Okay? Now, the reason why I mention that is because Ezekiel is a priest and we find the same delineation in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is full of abominations, plural there's only one thing that's listed as an abomination and that's for a man to lie with a woman as if he were or sorry a man to lie with a man as if he were a woman okay and so it seems here that a issue on the list for ezekiel is the homosexual issue it's not the primary issue it's definitely not the sole issue but it's present we see the same thing in the book of jude in the new testament in jude verse 7 Looking back on this instance, Jude says this. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so here, Jude mentions both sexual immorality and unnatural desire. Now, I want to be clear about a couple of things. First off, if we were go, going to go back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is going to say that the behavior of Israel is worse, not because of homosexuality, but because they know better and yet they've turned to idols because they've become self-righteous and arrogant. Isaiah refers to them as being like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, you give all your sacrifices, you do all the ritual, but you neglect the poor and the needy. Okay? So to use Sodom and Gomorrah as a label of the worst type of sinners because of this homosexual issue is ridiculous. Jesus makes the same critique against the cities of his day. He says, woe to you, Capernaum. If I had done the miraculous things in the city of Sodom that I'd done in your streets, they would have repented a long time ago. I've done them here and present and you've rejected me. okay. Sometimes the word abomination gets thrown around like it's some sort of unforgivable sin or like it's the worst of the pile. That doesn't hold up, okay? It means something tremendously specific, which effectively is unnatural, okay? But even when we use the word unnatural, it comes with all of this energy that the Bible doesn't put into it, and that's super important. However, however, it is really hard to remove this aspect of the story, especially because we see all sorts of aberrant sexuality in Genesis, and it always reflects back to the ideal in Genesis chapter 2, where a man and a single woman, the two become one flesh. And so we've seen that with Sarah and Hagar. We'll see it with Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law. We're gonna, it's going to be a total mess. Okay, but there's a constant echo and reflection back. It's hard to believe it's not here. But the last thing I wanted to say is the Bible's argument against homosexuality is not in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not the passage. This is not the text. If you wonder what the Bible teaches on this, the place that you have to deal with, the place that you have to wrestle with is Romans chapter one, hands down. Okay. This is descriptive. Everything I've just told you is my best job at interpreting a story, but it's interpretation. What Paul does in Romans chapter 1 is prescriptive. He says this is how God views these things and he's very specific. Okay, Now there's so many other things I would like to add on that topic because there's a major difference between homosexual conduct and homosexual desire. There's so many other things that we should talk about but I just wanted to mention those for tonight. Let's go back to the story back in Genesis chapter 19. Okay, so... The men are are blinded and they give up. And then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else in here, sons in law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we're about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons in law, who were to marry his daughters. Okay? So he had virgin daughters, but they were betrothed, they're engaged. And so he goes to these men who he was bringing into his family as his sons-in-law and he tells them about what's going to go down. And Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, "Up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city," but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now I told you these stories are running parallel. This is the exact same point in the story where Sarah laughs. Sarah laughs at this beautiful promise of God. They think they think Lot is having a laugh. It's ridiculous. Judgment? What are you talking about? You know? And it does. It sounds crazy that this is about to go down. But unfortunately here, we're seeing a tremendous difference in influence, are we not? Okay, Lot has no influence in his city. He has no influence over his sons-in-law. And I'll let you in on a secret. He has no influence on his wife. He has no influence on his daughters. Okay? And so he tries to get them, but they're disinterested. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. How many is that? Four. Lot, wife, two daughters. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Do you see that phrase, swept away? It's the same one that Abraham used in his conversation with God. God said, I would spare the city if there were even 10. There's not even five. In fact, even there, it gets really hard to count okay, as we'll see in just a minute, but nonetheless, notice the principle. Does that mean that the righteous will perish with the unrighteous? No, it just means that the unrighteous won't be spared with the righteous. You see the difference between those two things? God cannot bring his judgment on Sodom as long as Lot and his family is present, okay? They're removed, and I wish we had time to talk in First Thessalonians about what that looks like for us, um, but nonetheless, Uh, let's continue on here. Verse 16, he lingered. We're not told why he lingered. Maybe it's because he really cares about these two men. Maybe it's because he's already a little bit afraid. Uh, We really don't know why he lingers. But nonetheless, notice what happens next. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And he brought him out and set him outside the city. Why does it add that phrase, the Lord being merciful to him? The Lord's not really present in these things. These angels are. The implication, though, is the same. That Lot's stupidity, his weakness, his lingering, whatever this is, is not going to change the fact that God is righteous. And so he grabs him by the arm and yanks him out of danger's way. Okay. So they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them outside, they said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved." And so here we come to the intercession of the story. Abraham intercedes for the righteous in Sodom. Lot intercedes for the people of Zoar, not because they're righteous, but because it's nearby and he's afraid to travel further. And it's such a little city, right? Once again, the character of Lot is found to be lacking. Um, And so just the frustration. Put yourself in the shoes of these angelic beings whose only job is to deliver the so-called righteous lot and the conflict and the frustration they're having. But nonetheless, mercy. Verse, verse 21, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which just means little. Actually, we already had a reference to that in the, um, in the armies of the kings. It refers to a town that will become known as Zoar. This is why it becomes known as Zoar. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, two things about that. That's the entirety of the judgment. This is so different than an apocalyptic Hollywood blockbuster, right? If Michael Bay was telling this movie... We've covered the first five minutes and now we have two hours of destruction, right? But the Bible is completely different than that. It is so subtle in the way that it talks about judgment. It's not where the emphasis is. The reality is present, but it's not some sort of gore fest. It's not something that should be taken pleasure in, Um, but it's here. And then the second thing I want you to notice is the super weird structure where it says the Lord reigned from the Lord out of heaven. Once again, we get this plurality in the Godhead where it seems like there's a Lord and a Lord. It's not till the Psalms that we get the Lord said to my Lord, and it's not till Jesus that he says, why does David call the Messiah Lord even though he's his descendant? But it's all kind of pointing in the same direction. But these are just artifacts, right? It takes the rest of progressive revelation to see what they mean. And so this judgment is happening. It's fire and sulfur. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, in some ways, that's tremendously appropriate because if you go to where Sodom and Gomorrah was, we're talking about the Dead Sea. Everything is salt there, and especially on the south end, there's quite a few pillars of salt. But the idea here is, is that she looks back, and the word here means looks back long, Or maybe even longingly, okay? It's not just a glance over her shoulder. She looks back and she mourns the passing of this wicked city. Um, So, verse 27, Abraham went out early in the morning, I want to close up here, to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of the furnace, And so that brings us full circle. We come back to Abraham looking over the city and he sees the smoke. And you can imagine he's wondering about his nephew Lot. Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now the mystery is resolved. Is it Lot's righteousness? No, it's Abraham's intercession. It was because of Abraham's prayers that Lot is delivered. Now, in the New Testament, it does refer to Lot as righteous Lot, but that's probably relative, okay? Righteous Lot as in in comparison to the rest of Sodom. Yeah, sure, give him the medal. That's fine. Um, But he's nothing to be impressed by, uh, and yet the mercy here is because of someone else's prayers. And once again, the story here is not about Lot. The story is about Abraham. Abraham is held up here as an example of how we should feel about the world around us, and its compassion, and its mercy, and its intercession. And then we hear that that God's into that, that that's his character as well, that he hears those prayers, that he responds. Now, we need to put the final chapter in here. Uh, This is what would happen after the credits have rolled, if it was a Michael Bay movie. Verse 30, now Lot went up out of Zoar And lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. It's hard for me not to make fun of Lot here, right? He says, please, I don't want to go to the hills. That's too scary. Give me Zoar. And he gets there. He sees what happens to the valley, and he just cannot stay there. He's just constantly living in fear. So he goes to live in a cave. Remember, this is Lot who was given the choice in chapter 13. Anywhere you look, you go that way, that will be your land, and now he has a cave. Notice what happens next. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Okay. Now clearly they don't mean they think all mankind is passed away. They were just living in Zoar where there were men. Okay. But what they're basically saying in hyperbolic terms is we're never going to get married now. Okay. We're never going to have children. And so this is the plan they come up with in verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with father. Let's make him drink wine tonight also and then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So we made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. I told you that there's all these allusions to the flood. Drunk, sleeping, something going wrong is part of that illusion as well, just like Noah and his son Ham. Now, this is a mess, right? Why would the Bible record this? One of the reasons it records it is because it's not that unexpected. Lot offers his virgin daughters to a bunch of strangers to abuse all night long, and the, the way that they treat him is no better. They go, well, the only way we're going to get pregnant now is to get dad drunk, I mean, it sounds insane, and it should, okay? So verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, which literally means seed of the father. His, the father of the Moabites to this day, the younger also bore a son named Ben-Ami, which means son of my people. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And so like we've seen in many of the stories, it gives us the lineage of Lot, And then he disappears from the pages of scripture, okay? And so, this is not where I wanted to end tonight. I really wanted to end on the birth of Isaac, but we're not just, we're just not going to make it. But there are some things that we've seen that I want you to recognize tonight, which are primarily the character of God, okay? We see God who offers unconditional promises and mercifully, despite the sins of his people, carries out those promises, we see a God who promises to bring justice and judgment, but does that in a way where mercy is available to the last second, where intercession actually matters and the prayers of his people can change things, um, where, um, where God would deliver a guy like Lot. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on to ponder, but it's so different than the way we normally think of this story. Is just a bunch of evil dudes who God wipes out. That's not even where the focus of the story is. There's a truth there, and it's an important one. Like Abraham asked, shall not the God of the earth do rightly? And if you struggle with this fact that God could bring judgment and consequence, you have to ask yourself if you really want the alternative. Do you want injustice to reign? Do you want people to literally get away with murder? Are you content with the possibility of eternity bending to the left and never righting itself? Because the Bible declares that God is just and that's something to rejoice in. We don't rejoice in his judgment. And I'll finish here because it seems appropriate. The book of Revelation is full of horrors. It presents the final consequence of God's wrath being poured out on the earth and it's hard to read But John, who writes it, when he comes to the end, this is how he phrases his thinking. He says, even still, come Lord Jesus. Do you hear the attitude there? Do you hear the reflection? He doesn't rejoice in the judgment. He's not rubbing his hands and going, I can't wait till the wicked get it. John knows he's one of the wicked. And if it weren't for the blood of Jesus, that's what he deserves. He knows all those horrors are coming, and yet he can trust in God's goodness and his justice that even at the end, as it says earlier in the, book of, the Re- a book of Revelation, that we can say like the angels do, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Let's pray. Father, I said earlier tonight that sin complicates things. And one of the things that sin complicates the most is our view of our sins. Our view of what is sin, our view of other sinners, and especially our view of you. Our sin turns us into cowards and makes us imagine God as an ogre. But what we find in the Bible is a God who is patient and long-suffering, a God who not only desires to show mercy but took judgment upon his own shoulders in Jesus Christ, entered into the suffering and the punishment and the wrath that we deserved, and paid the full penalty of it so that we could freely be restored to him. I pray, God, that that would right our vision, that at the cross we would see the horror of sin and the true reality of a just God who will bring consequence. But at the same time, we'll see your tremendous offering of love that you didn't just bring about that judgment, you bore it on your own shoulders on the cross and you did it on our behalf i pray that we would just respond in faith that we would trust you that we would obey you that we wouldn't waver like lot but we'd be swift to obey like abraham because you were good i pray this in your name amen